Welcome to Modern Murders, a true crime podcast about murders after the year 2000. I'm your host, Ariel. This is Episode 8, The Murder of Carl DeBrody. On the evening of Monday, April 12th, 2017, the body of a missing Fulton, Missouri man, Carl DeBrody, was found encased in concrete inside of a storage unit. An extensive search for the 31-year-old had been underway since he was reported missing one week earlier on April 17th. The discovery of DeBrody's badly decomposed body and the investigation that followed painted a picture of a vulnerable young man who was neglected and abused by the very people he depended on for care. And sadly, Carl's tragic story is just one of many examples of what can happen when the most vulnerable among us are left to fall through the cracks. On November 18, 1985, Carl Lee DeBrody was born to David Howard and Carolyn DeBrody in Columbia, Missouri. Friends and classmates say that Carl had a cheerful personality and was quick to offer a big hug. Diagnosed with autism at an early age, Carl was unable to read, write, or speak, but it didn't seem to put a damper on his spirit. He loved dogs, being outdoors, driving the riding lawnmower, go-karts, fishing, and baseball. Family members say he also liked watching Walker, Texas Ranger on TV and loved going to see the fire trucks at the local fire station. Though Carl was seemingly a very happy-go-lucky kid, he faced a lot of challenges from the very beginning. In addition to his developmental and intellectual disabilities, even as a young boy, Carl had a lot to deal with at home. His father had passed away and his mother, Carolyn, was described by the Cole County Circuit Court as severely intellectually, psychologically, socially, and occupationally impaired. Western District Judge Lisa Hardwick found the grounds existed to terminate Carolyn's parental rights. Carl's brother, Nathan Clark, stated in a Facebook post that their parents were abusive. Clark and two of his siblings were placed in other homes and subsequently lost contact with Carl as they distanced themselves from their traumatic childhood. Clark is quoted as saying, I didn't want to be a part of our biological parents' lives. Carl's cousin Patrick DeBrody told the Fulton son that he felt sorry for Carl. He is quoted as saying, to be honest, his mother and father weren't good parents. Mary Martin first saw Carl on his school bus route when he was about 10 years old. She was a bus driver and driving the morning and afternoon routes to Jefferson City Schools. She remembers being touched by the huge smile on his face despite having his broken arm in a cast at the time. Martin soon became Carl's big sister in the Big Brother Big Sisters of America program, and the Martins subsequently took Carl into their home. Some sources say that this was when he was about 11 or 12 years old, while others say that he was 13 or 14 years old at the time. Mary Martin says that Carl thrived while at their rural Callaway County home. He rode four-wheelers, loved to run and play outside, and even had his own pet horse. Martin told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, quote, We had a blast. He just loved us. We loved him. It was a family, just like anyone else's. He was our child. 
According to the Columbia Tribune, in 1999, the Cole County Juvenile Court found, quote, clear, cogent, and convincing evidence that Carl and his siblings had been abused or neglected, and that his mother, Carolyn, had a permanent mental condition rendering her unable to knowingly provide for her children, including Carl, necessary care, custody, and control. Already living with the Martin family at the time, Carl was showing significant improvement according to the court documents. When Carl turned 18, his status was changed to that of an incapacitated and disabled adult, technically a ward of Callaway County, but he continued to live with the Martins until he was 21. From there, he moved into the Brady Independent Living Community in Fulton, an assisted care facility where he would have help in learning to live more independently. While living at Brady, Carl worked at Kingdom Projects, a nonprofit workshop that provides training and empowerment for adults with disabilities and special needs. It's not known why, but according to 2014 court documents, Carl moved back in with his mother, Carolyn, less than a year after moving into the Brady house. His court-appointed guardian, Jana Ostrich, told the court that Carolyn's home was still an unhealthy environment for Carl. She testified to a troubled scene when she visited the home in 2008 and found Carl chain-smoking and just, quote, pacing and pacing and pacing. In 2009, Mary Martin began the process of petitioning Callaway County to transfer Carl's legal guardianship back to her. While that was pending, in 2010, Carl moved out of his mother's home and into a facility in Millersburg called Second Chance Homes. Ostensibly, Second Chance was meant to be another opportunity for Carl to have help learning to live more independently in an environment similar to a typical family home. Ostrich, the legal guardian, testified that at second chance, Carl stopped smoking and learned to feed the cows, but Mary Martin was concerned that all wasn't well at second chance homes. While in her care, Carl wasn't on any medication and was able to use the restroom independently. Since living at second chance, Martin noticed that Carl had begun wearing adult diapers and seemed heavily medicated. She said he seemed sad and lonely and lost. Even worse, while visiting the Martins for Christmas, Carl was found to be covered in bruises. Mary said that she subsequently called a hotline in 2010 to report potential abuse happening at Second Chance, but a representative for the Missouri Department of Social Services seemed to deny that, telling the Fulton Sun, quote, The Missouri Medicaid Audit and Compliance Unit has no referrals, hotline calls, complaints, or investigations that relate to Second Chance. Mary Martin had also taken photos of Carl's bruises and showed them to Ostrich, the legal guardian, who testified that she felt the bruises were likely a result of Carl, quote, bumping into things outdoors. Because of Carl's speech limitations, Martin couldn't simply ask Carl what happened to him. She told the Columbia Tribune that Second Chance later told her that a fellow resident hit Carl. Mary claims that after her complaint to the hotline, Second Chance no longer allowed Carl to take her phone calls. An investigation into the alleged abuse of Carl was completed and no one was found to be responsible for his injuries, but we can find no further information on the details of that investigation. 
I was provided a photo of his bruises and they do look questionable, but it's hard for me to determine if these bruises were done by someone or in fact he was bumping into things. The arms do look like he could have bumped into a doorway or um, some sort of corner edge of a bookshelf. However, the bruises on the chest seem really odd to me. It almost seems like somebody was poking at his chest really hard, like digging their finger into his chest because the bruises are very circular and they're almost like dots. They're not big bruises at all. So I'm less likely to believe that he ran into something and that's what created the bruises. I also think that if someone hit him in the chest, it wouldn't leave this bruising patterns. So I'm going to put the picture up on my blog. You can also check it out on Instagram and let me know what you think of the bruising patterns because I do feel like bruises tell a lot. It doesn't seem like they were able to figure it out either. They didn't find anybody responsible, but I do think it's highly questionable the way that the bruising pattern is. Assessing Carl's situation for the adoption proceedings, court-appointed guardian Ostrich stated that she saw tremendous positive change in Carl upon visiting him at Second Chance in 2010. She said she found Carl to be happy, healthy, robust, cozy, and comfortable there. In comparison, Ostrich testified that she visited the Martins' home and found it to be chaotic, with a lot of family members coming and going. In court documents, she's quoted as saying, quote, There is a lot of traffic inside of Mary's home, and I'm not sure that type of environment is the secure and stable environment that someone with Carl's needs is best suited. Ultimately, Mary Martin's petition for the guardianship of Carl was denied by Callaway County in April of 2010. In 2011, Carl was 25 and had been moved to Second Chance Home in Fulton. Still concerned and hoping to better Carl's situation, Mary Martin petitioned Cole County Court to adopt Carl as an adult. Mary Beck was appointed by the court to be Carl's new guardian during the adoption. While visiting the Martins' home with Carl that December, Beck noted that Carl seemed very at home with the Martins. He had access to the entire house, got his own drinks, let the dogs out, and interacted comfortably with other various family members. Beck also observed that visiting neighbors and friends seemed to genuinely enjoy Carl's company. During this visit, in his limited way, Carl asked Mary Martin's husband if he could stay there with them. Guardian Beck reported that Mr. Martin hugged him, but told him that he would have to leave and assured him that he was doing everything in his power to ensure that Carl would be part of the family more often. After the visit with the Martins, Carl returned to Second Chance, but Beck recommended that the court grant the adoption. Just six months later, in May of 2012, something had changed in how Carl seemingly felt about the Martins. By this time, Carol D. Allen was now Carl's court-appointed guardian for the adoption, and when she visited Carl at Second Chance, two employees in particular appeared to be heavily influencing Carl and affecting his behavior. Sherry Paolo was the assistant director of Second Chance Homes, and Vicki Cole was the house manager in the home where Carl had been living. When Alan tried to speak with Carl about potentially being adopted by Mary Martin, his response was very unexpected. She described him as being distraught, crying, screaming, and shaking his head no when Martin's name was brought up. 
Allen noted that Second Chance employees Paolo and Cole were constantly present during her visit with Carl, and it was her determination that the two, quote, exerted immense influence over Carl's response to Martin's name at the idea of adoption. In May of that year, Cole County ruled against the Martins' request to adopt Carl as an adult, seemingly for the main two reasons. For one, Carl's consent was needed, and the court stated that no credible evidence was presented to support a finding that Carl was capable of understanding the legal significance of a decision to consent to the adoption, and the legal guardian Karen D. Allen declined to give consent to the adoption. Martin once more appealed to the court in 2014. She still wanted to adopt Carl as an adult and take responsibility for his care in her home. The court denied her appeal, and sadly, she never saw Carl again. At some point in the following months, Carl moved to a second chance home in Fulton, Missouri. Not much is really known about his life at second chance, other than what we can see reported by his legal guardians during a few visits related to adoption or guardianship proceedings. What was his life like there day to day? Did he have friends? Were there enriching activities to keep him occupied or to aid in developing more independence? It seems Mary Martin's access to Carl, whether by telephone or in-person visits, was increasingly limited by second chance beginning in 2010. But someone in Carl's situation should have had multiple agencies monitoring his welfare on a regular basis throughout the years. His case manager from Callaway County Special Services should have been visiting him in person monthly, but she wasn't. She simply falsified the records to state that she had. He should have been evaluated by a community-registered nurse each month, but he wasn't. The nurse also created falsified records of visits that never happened. The Missouri Department of Mental Health should have been auditing Second Chance every two years in order to renew facility licenses and certifications. Those reviews should have included a thorough audit of Second Chance's records in which they were supposed to document every resident's treatment and progress on at least a monthly basis along with daily observational notes. Did any of these things actually happen the way that they're supposed to? Was any official agency truly paying attention? Carl wasn't being cared for properly at Second Chance and somehow, no one seemed to notice except Mary Martin. And what has now come to light about what the final years of Carl's short life is heart-wrenching. While the cause isn't known, at some point in 2014, Carl began struggling to maintain a healthy weight. One of his caregivers at Second Chance actually did take Carl to a doctor who prescribed a meal supplement that should have helped him gain and maintain a healthier weight. Sherry Paolo, Carl's home manager, was responsible for making sure that Carl was taking his supplements and receiving all necessary medical care, but she did no such thing. Instead, she falsified doctor's notes indicating that Carl was being treated by a physician while Carl continued to lose weight. Paolo had stopped taking Carl to see all of his physicians, including his mental health providers. Paolo's husband, Anthony Flores, also worked in Carl's second chance home as a caretaker. He observed Carl's mobility declining. He was getting out of his bed less and less, and when he did, he would move around very slowly. He had also began having episodes of prolonged loud howling 
indicative of physical and mental distress, according to legal documents. According to the Missouri Attorney General and the Callaway County Prosecuting Attorney's Office, despite Carl's obvious declining health, Flores and Paolo began taking him into their home for overnight stays, largely to keep people from finding out about Carl's deteriorating condition. During these overnight stays, Paolo and Flores forced him to perform unpaid manual labor, and they also made Carl sleep on the floor of their unfurnished and unfinished basement during these visits, and did not provide him with any bedding, food, or medication. Court documents describe the area where Carl was housed as a small area in the basement with a bricked-over window, exposed pipes and wiring, and a concrete floor. Even worse, and likely the cause of Carl's needless demise, Sherry Palo and Anthony Flores made Carl and another Second Chance resident physically fight each other for the entertainment of Palo and Flores. This caused Carl to suffer serious injuries, including at least six broken ribs. According to the federal lawsuit filed by Carl's mother and aunt, Anthony Flores heard Carl screaming in their basement one night, went downstairs, and found DeBrody in the midst of a seizure. Instead of getting Carl the emergency medical care that he desperately needed, Flores and Paolo carried Carl upstairs and left him in the bathtub with the shower water running. Despite the fact that Carl was bleeding from his nose and mouth and convulsing in the bathtub, Paolo and Flores did nothing to help. They simply left him there to die a painful death, and as if it could get any worse, they left Carl's dead body in their bathtub for two to three days before stuffing him into a city of Fulton trash can like yesterday's garbage. From there, they took the trash container to the Second Chance home in Fulton, where Carl was supposed to be living. According to court documents, Paolo then moved the trash can around the Second Chance property for several days because it had begun to smell. With the help of a third unnamed individual, Flores and Paolo placed the trash can containing Carl's body inside of a wooden crate and filled it with cement, encasing Carl's body inside. They then transported the whole thing to a storage unit where it remained for several months. Carl's exact date of death isn't known because Flores and Paolo didn't report it. They said they didn't want to be blamed for mistreating him. They also didn't want anyone to know that Carl had been living in their basement instead of his assigned second chance home, so they began actively concealing and benefiting from Carl's death. Paolo made Carl's housemate lie in Carl's bed so that it appeared to certain visitors that Carl was still living in his assigned residence. She also continued submitting falsified claims to Medicaid, which provided the funding for Carl's ongoing care and checks kept coming in to the tune of $106,795, which Paolo fraudulently collected. She also used Carl's EBT card to make purchases and submitted falsified records to indicate that Carl was alive and well. On April 17, 2017, a company called Fink Supported Living Services was set to take over the ownership of the second chance facility managed by Paolo and Flores in Fulton. It wasn't until the very morning that ownership was set to change hands that Paolo and Flores reported to authorities that Carl had gone missing around 7.30 a.m. Presumably, they decided to file the report because the new owners would quickly realize that a patient meant to be residing in the home wasn't actually there. 
After seven days of searching, investigators discovered Carl's body in the storage unit in an advanced state of decomposition, leading them to believe he'd actually been dead for months. Five of the Second Chance employees were indicted for several offenses relating to Carl's death. A nurse pleaded guilty to healthcare fraud. Others pleaded guilty for providing false reports and obstructing an investigation. The Missouri Coalition for Quality Care called for a review of the Department of Mental Health and the state of Missouri was ordered to pay more than $1 million to settle a federal lawsuit. Sherry Paolo and Anthony Flores entered guilty pleas in federal court for willfully failing to provide necessary medical care. Mary Martin told KOMU News that this was insufficient. She is quoted as saying, I would have liked to see them have some kind of manslaughter charge, if not murder. Paolo faces a maximum of 17.5 years in prison and Flores faces just over 15 years. It appears a sentencing hearing won't be scheduled until a pre-sentence investigation by the United States Probation Office has been concluded. State charges are still pending against the two while the federal charges are being resolved. Mary Martin doesn't want people to forget Carl, nor the senseless suffering inflicted upon him by the people he depended on for care. She often posts fond memories of Carl on a Facebook group called Carl's Helping Hands, and an organization of the same name has been registered as a nonprofit charitable organization, seemingly with the goal of advocating for those with disabilities. If you'd like to find out more, search for Carl's Helping Hands on Facebook. There's also a hashtag justice for Carl being used on posts about Carl's case on Facebook. One in 59 children in the U.S. is diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder. Many, like Carl, need specialized resources and care. If you'd like to learn more about how you can help, consider checking out a great organization called Autism Speaks at AutismSpeaks.org. No one should endure the suffering that Carl faced, and while his death should serve as a wake-up call to those responsible for vulnerable children and adults in all of our communities, Carl's short life also had an enduring impact on his friends and family, who surely will remember his infectious smile and joyous spirit, which is a legacy worth celebrating. This episode is written by Christy Hoover and researched by Christy and myself. I do want to leave some parting words of my own opinion about this case, and I gotta say that Mary Martin was the only one fighting for Carl. My heart goes out to her because she lost a son, essentially. I've seen pictures of Carl, and I've known people with nonverbal autism, and I have to say that there is something so lively about them that just brings joy to your life. And I can imagine that even though Carl may not have been able to say what was on his mind, he was able to show it by giving hugs, by being around you. He just had an energy about him that Mary Martin just felt like they were connected on a deeper level. And I feel so bad that she kept raising alarms to people and they just didn't do their job. And because they didn't do their job, this man lost his life. And he had so much potential to bring joy to the people that cared about him. And it was taken away because these people felt like he was trash, like he was useless. His life didn't mean anything. And that's totally incorrect. And these people are truly evil. To prey on someone very highly influenced. And they influenced him to turn his back on the people that cared about him most. This woman, Sherry Paolo, my god. 
I was looking at the photos of the people that, you know, had committed this crime and I was looking and I'm like, okay, I'm seeing, you know, two guys. Where, where is this Sherry Paolo? I realized that one of the pictures was Sherry Paolo. I got to say this woman looks rough. Um, I wanted to cover this case because I feel that a lot of people in healthcare industry get abused quite often because they're not in a hospital setting where people are coming and going and checking on them every hour or every day for that matter. They're kind of at the hands of these people and we're just kind of trusting the system that it's doing its job and nobody's really checking in on it. And even when someone like Mary Martin tells someone, hey, I don't think something's right, no one goes to check. And... And I was reading a little bit on the court documents and it seemed like the people working at Second Chance was making it very difficult to have healthcare guardians come to the house to check on Carl. They sort of had a way of stalling them. So I think after, you know, convincing them like, hey, Carl's fine, we took pictures or whatever, you know, whatever strings they pulled to convince the um, county workers that he was fine worked. And unfortunately, that's not good enough. And people should be very skeptical of people in these healthcare facilities because we're kind of putting our trust on them to take care of people that can't speak for themselves. People need to take this seriously and know that there's evil out there that preys on innocent people. And this is a perfect job for that. And we don't even know what the other residents went through. We can only imagine based on what they did to Carl is what they were doing to other people. And so I really hope that those other people are taken care of now and are replaced in a living facility that does the right thing. So those are my opinions. Take them with a grain of salt. But this case does really get me emotional because it's a helpless person, just like a child or an elderly person. They can't really do anything. But I do want to end with please like this episode if you liked it or comment if you didn't like it tell us what you didn't like subscribe if you would like to be notified about new episodes and also check out my instagram it's modern murders and you can see photos of this case if you want to get an idea of who carl was i'll try to keep most of the photos positive tell me what you think about this case i hope you have a great rest of your day and i'll be putting out another episode in a couple weeks (laughs) 